The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, let's um, take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. That's where we were studying on Wednesdays before various and sundry things happened. I don't even remember. This, I don't know if this is true, but I think we were last in Corinthians in, in May. I don't know. Carolyn would know for sure. But um, Carolyn, you don't know for sure. Anyway, it's been a while. So, um, But we left off at, uh, we finished 1 Corinthians 7, which was really good because that's a very difficult, challenging chapter. You might remember that. Uh, that brings us to chapter 8, which is um, a new section. So I'll spare you seven chapters of review tonight, and we'll just jump right into the new section, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, Dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to to stumble. Well, we get to um, this section in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and you might just ask yourself, what in the world does this have to do with me in the 21st century? I have never, ever, ever been tempted to eat meat sacrificed to an idol, okay? Now, there are some cultures today where this still is um, very much uh, an issue. Uh, but as we start this, I want to I give at least five sort of introductory remarks to set up the passage for us. So first, this section is so incredibly important that it goes from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way to chapter 11, verse 1. So, um, 8, 9, and 10, three solid chapters are devoted to 
idol meat. All right? Now, this is not the only place where the Bible addresses meat sacrificed to idols. All right? You might remember in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council when Gentiles were coming into the faith, the... um, the Judaizers were trying to uh, compel them to be circumcised, so a council is called, and there is what was called the Jerusalem Decree, and one of the things that the Gentile Christians were uh, commanded was not to eat meat sacrificed to idols, all right? Um, there's also two references in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, to eating meat sacrificed to idols. That's also in direct connection with fornication. And the reason is, is because eating meat sacrificed to idols and fornication were both activities that took place in pagan temples, all right? And so the New Testament deals with meat sacrificed to idols, in a sense, somewhat briefly. But what Paul is doing here is Paul is dealing with the subject pastorally. The Corinthians are making an issue of this, and we'll we'll talk about what that might have looked like. And as a result, what Paul does, starting in chapter 8, verse 1, all the way to 11-1, is he gives a very long and complicated argument. So just as a reminder, the way that you read your Bible is you read it, and especially when you're in the epistles, what's happening is typically arguments are being made. And you try to read in and follow the argument. And this is one of Paul's longest and, in fact, most complicated arguments. And the thing is, is that as we, we look at this passage, and we'll be in this for, for quite a while, because if you think about all the things that are entailed in chapters 8, 9, and then 10 you realize that there's a whole lot of stuff that Paul covers in those chapters, right? Um, the, the, the issue is, is that we have to understand what Paul is, is actually doing. We have to understand what he is exactly dealing with. And, and the reason is, is because if we don't, if we, if we misinterpret what Paul is doing in this section, especially chapter 8, um, <clears throat> we may end up embracing an idea about Christian liberty that is actually contrary to what Paul's even talking about. So my favorite illustration of this, and if you've been around a while, you've heard this and you're probably tired of it, but... Um, the uh, former president of the seminary I went to was uh, Dr. Earl Rodmacher. And Dr. Rodmacher um, grew a beard. Big deal, right? Well, this was back in the late 60s. And among more conservative, fundamental-type Christians, beards were a no-no, all right? Now, I know that most of you don't even remember that era, Um, but I was only three, so I don't really remember, and I wasn't a Christian yet. So um, Dr. Rodmacher grew a beard. Well, that was considered to be taboo. Now, Moody Monthly actually ended up having a big problem when they came to 
Moody's uh, 100th birthday because, of course, they were going to put his picture on the front. And, of course, Moody had a beard that had, you know, wildlife in it. Um, but be that as it may, Dr. Rodmacher went to preach one time and, and, um, and a woman came up to Dr. Rodmacher after the sermon and she says, Dr. Rodmacher, I insist that you shave that beard immediately. You're causing me to stumble. And he says, ma'am, the only way I could be causing you to stumble is if I were tempting you to grow a beard. All right? So, (laughs) all that to say that uh, our understanding of Christian liberty is really, really important, both for ourselves and, of course, for the people around us. So, it's critical that we understand what Paul is doing in this section. Um, let me just give you a brief outline of what Paul's going to do. Chapter 8, 1 to 13, he's going to talk about knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Chapter 9, Paul is going to use himself as an apostolic example of giving up one's rights for the sake of others. In other words, he will use himself as a living example of Christian liberty in action. The third section, 10, 1 through 22, Paul will strongly warn the Corinthians against idolatry, which, of course, is directly connected to eating meat, sacrificed to idols. And then the fourth section, Paul will urge the Corinthians to use their freedom to God's glory, 10, 23 through 11, 1. All right? So that's the, that's the section and like I said, we'll be in this for quite a while. The second main point of the introduction is this, is that 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 are not talking about the same thing. Now, the reason why that's important is because Paul does address Christian liberty in Romans chapter 14. But if we look at 1 Corinthians 8 as if it's Romans 14 we will miss the point of 1 Corinthians 8. All right? So, in Romans chapter 14, Paul's dealing not with food sacrificed to idols. He's dealing with food that was deemed to be either clean or unclean. In other words, he's dealing with dietary laws. Okay? Not dealing with meat sacrificed to idols. Um, There will be a similarity in the ethic that Paul uses in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. And the similarity in ethic will be the stumbling block principle, which is clear in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, and the fact that love for your brother is the controlling principle on how you use liberty. All right? So those are the similarities but they are not talking about the same thing. That brings me to what is um, sometimes called the traditional understanding of 1 Corinthians 8, which actually does see it too closely connected to Romans 14. And the ideas go something like this. This is the traditional view that I don't think is, is correct. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul's dealing with strong and weak, all right? Now, that's absolutely true in Romans 14. Ironically, we usually turn strong and weak from a Romans 14 perspective on its head. Don't we? 
Normally, we think whatever our conviction is, that's the strong, and whatever the opposing conviction is, that's the weak. Or, to put it more plainly, um, the abstinence position is the strong, and the participation uh, position is the weak. And actually, for Paul, it's just the opposite. Okay? Those that abstain are considered to be the weak. Those that partake of their liberty are considered to be the strong. Now, that's Romans 14. That's not exactly what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 8. So the traditional view sees weak and strong, and then the whole issue being uh, food or meat bought in the marketplace that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, Paul's going to deal with with that issue of, of buying meat that may have been sacrificed to idols, but that is not the crux of the issue, all right? Paul is dealing with something that is going to be much bigger than, than just that uh, that we see in Romans 14, and in fact, quite a bit more complicated, all right? Third point of introduction is this. There are peculiar challenges in this chapter, in this section. For instance, the exact meaning of of, of food sacrificed to idols. What exactly does Paul have in mind? All right? Is he talking about just meat that you'd buy in the marketplace that had been sacrificed to idols? Or is he talking about something different? If he's talking about something different, it actually puts a different cast over what he's saying. All right? Um, another peculiar challenge here is uh, what was the actual cultural context? What was going on in Corinth? Right. Um, another uh, big question is, um, uh, what was the Corinthians' position? Were the Corinthians just sort of anti-Paul in eating meat sacrificed to idols, or was there a faction within the Corinthian assembly between those who thought it was okay and those who didn't? Right. Um, and we'll we'll try to sort some of these out. Um, What's the connection to the argument from 8 to 9? That's another big question. But fourth point, here's the big one. What is the relevance of idle food or idle meat for the Christian today? Right? <laughs> Thanks, Don. So let's close our Bibles and just since there's no relevance. There, there's actually a ton of relevance. Okay? Now... <clears throat> What has to happen is we have to figure out how to bridge the horizon of the biblical world with the horizon of our world, with an issue that is not pertinent to us as it was in the biblical world, i.e. eating meat sacrificed to idols. Now, every once in a while, um, you will discover that there are things... Um, that, uh, that other Christians in other parts of the world struggle with that, that we never even think about. So I'm teaching the book of Acts in China, right? And I'm talking about the Jerusalem decree. And not only are you supposed to avoid eating meat sacrificed to idols according to the Jerusalem decree, but guess what else you're supposed to abstain from? What's that? Blood. You don't eat meat that's been strangled. Still has the blood in it. 
right? I have no clue what I'm about to do other than just say, well, this really isn't relevant. And all of a sudden, a riot breaks out. Not quite a riot. This is a huge issue because in China, there is a debate among Christians as to whether it is permissible to eat blood sausage or not. They collect the blood and then coagulate it and put it in sausage. And so my question to them was really simple. It wasn't even a biblical question. It was just, why would you do that? Okay? And um, which, um, which they thought was funny. But um, here they were dealing with something that, that most of us never even thought about. But for us, this is really not a big deal, right? We don't have to worry about eating something that was sacrificed to Zeus. Okay, So, again, how we understand this ends up being really crucial because if we, um, if we misunderstand what Paul is saying, then we will most definitely misapply what Paul is saying. Right? This, this is why... Um, This is why it is incumbent on pastors to work hard in the biblical text. All right? Because if we just come in with our own preconceived ideas or we just come in with, um, you know, with three points and a poem and we never actually dig into the scriptures and help God's people see what is there to the best of our ability, not saying that we're infallible because that's simply not true. You are still supposed to be good Bereans. Search the scriptures, right? Acts 17, 11, see if what we're saying is true. But the fact is, is that one of the reasons why it's important to dig in and to be as accurate as possible is because there is a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake in the way that we understand the Bible because the way that we understand the Bible will end up impacting the way that we apply the Bible. And so, if we misunderstand what Paul is saying, we may end up misapplying what we think he is saying and end up being guilty of the same attitudinal sins that the Corinthians were guilty of. So, it's important that we understand what the text is saying, all right? And then finally, by way of introduction, and I just alluded to this, that is, there's a magnitude to this, this text that we often just, we, we think, oh, food sacrificed to idols, don't have to worry about it. And yet, Paul talks about destroying a brother for whom Christ died. So there is a lot at stake in this text. In fact, when we read what Paul ends up saying, especially uh, in in the latter section of 7 to 13, we begin to realize that the Corinthians were conducting themselves in a way that was endangering the spiritual well-being of their church family. And the last thing that we ever want to do 
is imperil somebody because we think we have certain rights. Paul is going to give us a perspective on how to live out the Christian life with each other that is, um, that is compelling and transcends culture and transcends um, the issues of meat. All right? And so we would do well to pay attention. All right? Okay, well, all we're going to do tonight is just verses 1 through 3. And so... Verses 1 through 3, knowledge and love. Now, notice what Paul says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Now, that little now concerning, anybody remember? I know it's been a while since we've been in 1 Corinthians, but anybody remember what that little now concerning does, what it is? Okay, he's changing topics, that's for sure. Something they brought up. All right, we know this, we know that they wrote to him, and it could have been a series of questions, okay? because what he says in chapter 7, verse 1, is now concerning the things which you wrote to me, right? this little construction, now concerning. So as Paul goes through 1 Corinthians, and he has this now concerning, it almost certainly is a tip-off that this is pertaining to something that they have either specifically inquired about or something that they specifically brought up, all right? And so he says, now concerning, and it's just one word in the Greek text, things or meat sacrificed to idols. That's just one word. By the way, the, the, the word <laughs> that Paul uses is a compound word that is not found anywhere in the papyri, in the literature, up until the time of Paul. So you know what that leads us to perhaps believe? Is that Paul actually is coining a phrase. And it is not a good phrase because it's connected with the word idol. <laughs> All right? Anytime you say idol, okay, it's not going to be good, right? Um, unless it's idol smashing, right? It's, it's apart from idol smashing, all other idol compounds are usually bad. And so here, Paul says uh, what we've translated, meat sacrificed to idols, all right? Now, again, the traditional view just says that what, what is in view here is idol meat that's sold in the marketplace, and Paul will deal with that later, but I don't think that that's exactly what he means right here. Um, if what all he means is meat bought in the marketplace that had been sacrificed to idols, he's going to bring that up explicitly in chapter 10. And if that's the case, then he says something different in chapter 10 than what he says in chapter 8, right? So the context of chapter 8 leads me to think that he's talking about something that is a little different than just purely the meat itself that had been sacrificed to an idol. So let me just explain how that would work, by the way. So uh, you went into a pagan temple, and you would have a priest, and 
there would be, let's say, you know, a cow was brought in or whatever, and then that cow, the meat then, would be ritualistically offered up as an offering to whatever god or gods, and then it would be, part of it would be consumed, and then part of it would be eaten, and then what was left over was typically sold in the marketplace, all right? But all of this took place within the precincts of a pagan temple. Now notice verse 10. Paul says, For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, I think that what Paul is, is dealing with here as he starts this section out was actually participation in a cultic meal being held in a temple. So it's not just simply the meat itself, it's the meat in the precincts of the temple that they are eating. And you say to yourself, why in the world would they do that? The pagan temples were not only the ancient restaurants, they also were the ancient social centers. So, you know, your kids have a birthday, you go... Where? To Chuck E. Cheese, right? In the ancient world, your kid had a birthday, what'd you do? Y'all went down to the temple, okay? You got tokens for the games and all the meat you could eat, all right? Um, <clears throat> so it's very, very plausible to see the way in which what Paul's getting at here is not just simply the eating of meat, but actually participation in pagan temples, thereby eating the food that has been ritualistically offered up. Now, some people think that, that, that what Paul is getting at is just the idea that you're consciously aware that that meat had been offered. But I think there's actually uh, a, a, an idea that, that Paul is saying, so you're, you're eating meat, but you're eating meat within the, within the context of a pagan temple. All right? So, let's assume that that's what he's, what he's dealing with. And then he says this, we know that we all have knowledge. So anybody have the ESV? I know you do. Anybody notice what the ESV does with that statement? What's that? It's in quotes. Okay? The reason it's in quotes is because um, most New Testament scholars think that this is yet another Corinthian slogan. So it's in quotes, so, so now, now this is a little, little interesting because Paul says, now concerning um, eating meat sacrificed to idols, we know we all have knowledge. Now that doesn't seem to actually follow, but in reality it does. So it's a Corinthian slogan, so the Corinthians, remember, the Corinthians were 
uh, way ahead of their time. They were operating on the basis of, of bumper sticker theology long before there were bumper stickers, all right? They had these little slogans, you know, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, um, <clears throat> all things are lawful for me, um, <clears throat> we all have knowledge, right? Just, they had a whole list of things, so, you know, the, bot, the food is for uh, the stomach and stomach is for food, right? This is, this is their whole theology. You can put it on little, little post-it notes. And so, here's one of their slogans. We all have knowledge, all right? Now, <clears throat> remember the Corinthians, the Corinthians loved um, certain things. They loved, um, they loved rhetoric, right? They loved the polished speech. They loved the uh, ability to persuade. They loved Sophia. That is, they loved wisdom, or at least what their perception of wisdom was. They loved spirituality, which was completely foreign to what Paul meant when he talked about things of the Spirit. And they also loved knowledge or gnosis. They loved it. They loved those things because all of those things fed into their own spiritual elitism that is what was the bane of the Corinthian church. And so this little slogan, we all have knowledge, in all likelihood, was was their justification for attending pagan feasts and eating the food sacrificed to the idols in the temple precincts. Someone could say, why in the world would you do that? And the Corinthians could say, hey, we all have knowledge. We all have gnosis. And for them, remember, um, the the Corinthians typically are not um, um, expressing the real conviction they have about something, they're usually giving an excuse as to why they're doing something. Okay? They'd make, they'd make perfect Americans. Okay. So the Corinthians would say, um, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And you know what they meant by that, 1 Corinthians 6. Sex is for the body and the body is for sex. This is just, this is our little aphorism to, to justify us living how we want to live. Okay. So you have to remember, so in the Corinthian culture, social life, celebrations, important occasions would have taken place in pagan temples. If you were a businessman and you were about to make a big business deal, remember, Corinthian is a two-port commercial city, if you're going to make um, a business deal with somebody, guess where you're going to meet them? You're going to meet them in a temple. Okay? Religious life and, and life was just intertwined in the ancient world. Okay? Do you know who didn't actually go to pagan temples in first century Corinth? Jews. And, and guess what? The Jews were, they were social outcasts. They were, they were considered to be the odd man out. And so you could imagine the Corinthians not coming from a Jewish background, but coming from a Gentile background, and they think to themselves, you know what? 
Um, how else am I supposed to witness to my pagan friends unless it's around uh, the table, at the temple? Right? You can also think of the way that not only would this be um, socially awkward to refuse to go to the temple if invited. Okay? So let's just pretend for a minute that Jason, which is, that's a Greek name, right? Jason and the Argonauts, right? So Jason, let's say Jason, before he's converted, is, um, is, uh, is a pagan, all right? And he has a big company, and he's got friends, and, you know, and he's, he's got, you know, high-power friends, and let's say I'm one of them, okay? And I get converted. And he throws these, these parties at the temple. And now all of a sudden, that little social network that I'm very much identified with, Jason says, hey, next big meat-eating pagan festival party um, where we'll discuss, you know, revenues um, is next Monday. And I turn around and say, I can't go. You know what that does? That makes me look like a Jew. That makes me look like somebody that is now out of step with the world. Right? So you could imagine the Corinthians, in in a sense... um, making the excuse, it's okay if we go because we all have knowledge. Now, I think that that knowledge is going to be very specific of what they're going to talk about, but but also you had trade guilds. So let's say, you know, we were steel workers or we were teamsters. So in the ancient world, the teamsters met in pagan temples. This is where they met. This is where they did their business. So, so if, if I'm a part of the, some guild, right, if I'm a, in a trade guild and now all of a sudden, you know, let's say it's the game warden guild, all right, and, and the game warden guild is just notorious for going to pagan temples and eating and drinking too much. And now, here I am, a game warden, and very much my, my position depends on this network, this guild that I belong to, and I say, I can't go. What does that do? So as far as society, as far as work, as far as, 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 as career, I mean, everything is tied up. And so you could well imagine they don't want to be the social outcast. They don't want to be the odd man out. They don't want to be now, in a sense, shut out of the, the networks that they built uh, uh, up and, and belonged to. And so they were basing their ethical decision of participation in temple activity on the basis of knowledge. We all know, and this comes right from the text, there's only one true God. We all know 
that an idol is nothing in the world, we all know that food doesn't commend us to God one way or the other. All of those things, by the way, are right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And so you could imagine, here's their little slogan, and it justifies what they're doing. Because we just, we know better. Uh, Richard Hayes actually kind of paints for us what could have been very much the picture, the background. He says, those Christians who fear defilement from idle meat are simply ignorant and superstitious. We know. We've got the knowledge. The problem with the people that have scruples about going into the temple, the problem with them is that they're ignorant and superstitious. He says, the strong Christian armed with the, um, with the appropriate knowledge can go without compunction to the pagan temple and eat what is ever offered there. Indeed, doing so may be a way to demonstrate one's spiritual maturity and freedom. You can imagine the mentality that says, you know what? I go to the temple. I participate. You know why? Because I am free in Christ. Boy, you start talking like that. You start bragging about how far you can push the envelope because you're free in Christ. You're probably on a wrong path. He says, the Corinthians who advocated this position, maturity, freedom, may actually have argued that their more scrupulous brothers and sisters should try to build up their strength of their own consciences by attending such ceremonies and eating the idle meat. If they would only do that, they would see that no harm comes of it and their consciousness uh, consciousness would be raised. The Corinthian letter probably appealed to Paul to set the record straight by encouraging the weak to overcome their qualms and enter the world of spiritual freedom enjoyed by those who possess knowledge. So I think that that's, I think that that's plausible. You have these people that are, that are boasting of their freedom and, and what they can do in Christ, and then you have them looking at these people that are, that are saying, you know what, I can't do that. They used to be part of my old life. I can't do that. I can't go there. I can't participate in that. And they would say, look, we all have knowledge, and you know as well as we do that there's only one God, and you know as well as I do there's no such thing as an idol, and you know as well as I do that, um, that food doesn't commend you to God. And so what you need to do to kind of become more mature like me is you need to come to the temple with me and have a big T-bone steak that's just been offered up to the gods. And that's what will help you. In other words, they're making ethical decisions based on their sense of what they thought they knew. All right? That is on the basis of knowledge. Now, Paul does not say, we all have knowledge. Well, that's, that's not true. That's not what Paul says. What he does is he rebuts the Corinthian slogan, not by saying it's untrue, but by giving a qualifier that should recast it. 
We all have knowledge, the Corinthians would say. And then Paul turns around, and what does Paul say? Paul turns around and says, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Now, this most definitely is is Paul's uh, retort to the Corinthian slogan, knowledge puffs up, it makes proud. Um, I love in, in Bauer, Art, and Gingrich, uh, this, this word for puff up is to cause to have an exaggerated self-conception. Okay. Has Paul already dealt with pride in the Corinthian church? Just say yes and you'll be right. Okay. Yes, good. Yeah, he dealt with it in chapter 4, three different times, and chapter 5. For Paul... Paul perceives the fundamental problem of the Corinthians to be their own pride. Their own pride, their own spiritual pride, is uh, is bolstered by the fact that they thought they were so mature, they were so spiritual, and Paul turns around and he says, you know what knowledge does? Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes arrogant. In other words... The use of gnosis, the use of knowledge, can be destructive. Why? Because it can lead to pride. And when it leads to pride, it insists on its own rights. And when it insists on its own rights, it focuses on self instead of others. And so Paul says, knowledge puffs up. I mean, and so you could imagine this is, this is what fuels the Corinthian elitism. We have more of the spirit. We have more knowledge. We have more maturity. We have more this. We have more that. And, uh, and boy, if only the whole Christian world could be more like us. Jesus would come back, no doubt. Paul then turns around and says, love edifies. Love builds up. This this is interesting. It's not knowledge that builds up. It's love that builds up. Calvin makes this powerful comment. He says, Accursed be that knowledge which produces arrogant men and is untouched by a concern for other people's welfare. So love puts other people first. Knowledge typically puts the knower first. Paul then says in verse 2, he says, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. There's a good chance that the text should be shorter than that. If anyone thinks he has come to know, they do not know as they ought. Paul's not talking specifically about um, knowing specific content things. He's talking about a, a mentality that basically says, if anyone thinks he has arrived when it comes to knowledge... So the, the, the tense of the verb 
bears this out. If anyone thinks that he has arrived when it comes to knowledge. You ever met anyone that thought they had arrived? By the way, this is... um, This is the Achilles heel of young men. They think they've arrived. And there aren't very many young men who are exempt. I, um, I remember the, after my first semester undergrad at Biola, so Bible college, first semester, I came home, and my dad says, so you learning anything? I'm like, oh yeah, I'm learning a lot, and there's a lot of stuff that I'm absolutely confident in, and he says, like, what? You have to know my position now for this to be funny. That the tribulation is reserved for the nation Israel and the church will not go through the tribulation. And he's like, so you know that for sure? And I said, absolutely. I'm so pre-trib, I don't even eat post-toasties anymore. Now. All right, so. Guess what? I didn't know anything, right? And in fact, there is, there's an axiom as you grow, and that is, the more you know, the less you realize you know, right? And so here's the Corinthians, and like, we all have knowledge, and Paul says, if you think that you've arrived, you don't know anything, Because the first thing you ought to know is that you haven't arrived. And so here he is. And so Paul turns around and he says, they don't know as they they ought. And that they haven't even begun to understand anything. So this is is really, this is uh, the great thing too about raising sons. Is that by the time they're 13, they know absolutely everything. In fact, when one of our sons arrived at complete knowledge, I looked at Ariel and I said, we don't even need Google anymore. We just ask Alex, (laughs) right? (laughs) And then, of course, what happens? You grow. And then you realize young people absolutely brilliant your parents are, okay? And how they know way more than you've ever given them credit for. And you also come to the realization, and mark my words, that you will never, ever be as smart as your parents. Ever. Okay? Just remember that. But you start to realize, I didn't know anything. And so here's Paul, and he's telling these Corinthians, he's saying, listen, if you think that you've arrived, you actually don't know a thing. 
Then he turns around and he says, if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Again, there's another variant in this text, and the shorter reading just goes like this. If anyone loves, this one is recognized. So what is Paul saying? Well, I mean, what Paul's saying in a, in a real sense that, uh, you know the one, you know the person who really knows? It's the person who loves. That Clement of Rome, no doubt um, referring to this text, says, whoever loves truly knows. Gordon Fee makes this comment, and he says, Christian behavior is not predicated on the way of knowledge, which can lead to pride and destroy others, but on the way of love, which is, in fact, the true way of knowledge. So here are the Corinthians, and they thought that by their conduct, um, they thought that their conduct and their ethics could be determined simply on the basis of knowledge And this would inevitably lead to their pride and to a mentality that insisted on its rights. This is how Paul starts this whole section. So what do we say? Well, first of all, I want to say that knowledge is important. I don't think anybody would try to argue that somehow ignorance is more virtuous than knowledge, right? Um, Now, uh, there are many of God's children who are very simple in their faith, who have a very basic understanding of the gospel and a basic understanding of who God is and who they are, and there is no... Uh, there is no great sophistication. They've, never, they've ge- never given two thoughts to the doctrine of impassibility, let alone uh, superlapsarianism. They don't care. But they know God. Right? But that's not to say that the Bible does not s- tell us that knowledge is important. Right? In fact, we are supposed to add knowledge to our Virtue, First Peter, Second Peter 1, 5, and 6. At the end of that letter, what does Peter say? But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as Christians, we should always be trying to, to grow in our understanding. We should always be trying to grow in our, in our knowledge. Uh, again, there's no virtue in being ignorant. There's no virtue in being simple-minded. Uh, there's no virtue in, in not knowing the things that we, in fact, should know because they're in the Bible. So knowledge is important. And we should all have a desire to want to grow in our knowledge of God and His Word, right? But we have to understand that although knowledge is important, knowledge can, doesn't have to be, but can be dangerous. Knowledge can be dangerous when it is not tempered with love. Knowledge can become dangerous when it is joined to our pride. 
And in fact, there can be a, a spiritual pride that is based on what I know, what I've read, that simply looks with contempt at other people who haven't read the same stuff that I've read. R.C. Sproul used to talk about um, the uh, cage stage. You ever heard of the cage stage? A person comes to the doctrines of grace. R.C. Sproul says, when a young man comes to the doctrines of grace, you know what you should do? Lock him in a cage. (laughs) Why? Because the zeal and then sometimes the pride can make this person really an unpleasant person to be around. Because all they want to do is what? Win arguments. All they want to do is show how smart they are. All they want to do is, is, is expose the uh, weakness of their Arminian friend's position. Okay. And so knowledge, although glorious and important, can in fact be dangerous. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon, now listen to the title, The Importance and Advantage of a Thorough Knowledge of divine truth. So guess what he's going to argue in this sermon? Grow in the knowledge of God and his word, right? And he's going to give specific ways to do that. But then he says this towards the end of the sermon, very important. He says, seek not to grow in knowledge chiefly for the sake of applause and enable you to dispute with others, but seek it for the benefit of your soul's In order to practice it, if applause be your end, your goal, you will not be so likely to be led to the knowledge of the truth, but may justly, as often is the case of those who are proud of their knowledge, be led into the error to your own perdition. This being your end, if you should obtain much rational knowledge, it would not be likely to be of any benefit to you, but would puff you up with pride. David Garland says, Paul is, is an enemy, not of knowledge per se, but of knowledge that is not informed by faith and directed by love, that inflates egos and wants to put itself on display and receive acclaim. So knowledge is important. We should strive for it. But we also need to realize the tendencies of our own heart. And knowledge can end up being a dangerous thing if not directed by faith and love. In fact, you know what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5? Paul says this, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. So, if you teach and teach and teach and teach and teach, and the only thing that's happening is people get bigger heads and become more argumentative, then you're not aiming for the goal of the Apostle Paul. One of the manifestations of God's people growing in the knowledge of God and of the gospel should be love. 
Because love is, in fact, our ethic. Right? It's love that is our ethic. I debated whether I would say this or not, but usually if I have to preface, I probably shouldn't say it. Christians on social media dishearten me with what seems to be a virtual, universal lack of love for each other, but a love for arguing. Has anybody ever won a Facebook argument? Was that really long post that you put up, did that persuade multitudes? Or did it simply evoke other responses equally as long? With language that might have been meaner. We need to watch how we treat each other, how we speak to each other, whether it's face-to-face or, even more dangerously, really on social media, because guess what's really easy to do? If you don't have to look somebody in the eyeball, it is really easy to be a nasty jerk for the sake of an argument. And Paul would say, knowledge puffs up, love edifies. And so love is, in fact, our ethic, and we should be striving to grow in that love for each other. Putting each other first. Not insisting on my way or my rights, but doing what is good for our neighbor, especially our neighbor in Christ. We will pick this up next week, and Paul will continue to develop this argument, and we'll put some shoe leather on it. And so, let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us to grow in love. And we pray, Lord, that where we find ourselves um, puffed up and arrogant towards others, we pray that you would remind us that we are what we are because of your grace. What do we have that we did not first receive? And if we received it as a gift, why do we boast as if we didn't? And so, Father, we pray that you would help us even tonight. Help us to be those that guard their hearts and, and, and Lord, who are motivated by a love from the heart for those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.